Shana Tova, Gemar Tov. As it's a little late, let's start with some trivia. Okay, we got two first. What world famous Chazan arranged the tune that we just heard? If you said Cantor Rosner, you would be correct. Beautiful, beautiful, and thank you for sharing it with us. One more for you. If you had to guess, what would you guess are the two most ubiquitous Jewish observances today? Take a second to think, and then we're going to have you shout it out. The two most ubiquitous Jewish observances today. Whose guess is number one? Pesach Seder, and you would be correct. As of, this is as of the 2020 Pew Report on American Jewry, Pesach Seder, which has been topping the charts since the 50s, is still on top. Number two, I'm hearing Hanukkah. Did I hear someone say Tzom Gedalia? Because that's <laughs> not... <laughs> it's like, yeah, two bob. Okay. No, wait, sorry, not. What, what I heard over here? Bar, ooh, bar Mitzvah, Hanukkah. You got, these are some good but incorrect guesses. Thanks, man. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, specifically fasting on Yom Kippur. More than going to shul, more than, right, there are people, but fasting on Yom Kippur is the number two most observed Jewish custom done by American Jews today. Now, the Seder, we understand why it's so popular. It's home-based, it's centered on family and children, it has fun moments, but still connects to a meaningful story that we all know and love. The rituals can be adapted in new ways. It has food, family, friends, a store you can make movies out of, and you get to drink wine. What's not to love? But fasting on Yom Kippur, fasting on Yom Kippur lacks all of this. It's hard. It's personal. It's not about family. It can't be changed. And we don't even really know why we do it. So why is it the second most observed ritual? Perhaps its popularity comes from the fact that in an age of declining Jewish literacy, fasting takes no special training or education. There's no Hebrew, there's no weird palm fronds, and no lengthy prayers. Sorry, Chazan. Or maybe its popularity is precisely because it is kind of weird and kind of cool. Fasting is something that we Jews do that the average American does not. Maybe it gives us a special feeling of piety, a feeling of piety that every member of this priestly nation is entitled to feel. Whatever the reason, even a quarter of Jews who say they have no religion at all still fast on Yom Kippur. This tradition has struck a chord with many Jews despite its lack of concrete reason. The rabbis themselves are unclear as to exactly why we fast on Yom Kippur. 
The Torah simply tells us that on this day we should ta'anu et nafshotechem, we should afflict our souls. And the rabbis in the Talmud rightly question how we get from fasting, from soul affliction. If we're meant to feel pain, they ask, why not simply sit out in the sun? Or we could say that on Yom Kippur, you have to put sand in your shoe or wear an itchy sweater or try to put my kids to bed. <laughs> then we would know affliction. <laughs> but the rabbis in the Talmud discuss a linguistic connection between the idea of afflicting souls and fasting. Building on that, Ibn Ezra says that an affliction of the soul must be opposite from its delight. And since our souls delight in eating, a cessation of eating provides our affliction. There are other prohibitions on Yom Kippur to reflect other things our souls and bodies delight in, but essentially what we are restricting and refraining from today is appetite. We restrict our appetites on this day of atonement because so much of what we did this year was, I imagine, a failing of our ability to regulate our appetites. One need only look at the myriad sins in the confessional that we're going to read. Many of them could have been avoided if we were slightly better at regulating ourselves and our desires. Our world today bears out this rabbinic concern over self-regulation. Much current study is being done on the benefits of self-control and the ability to delay gratification, what they do for an individual. Now the seminal study on this subject was done at Stanford 50 years ago by Dr. Walter Michel. The study is known commonly as the, it's an educated crowd, as the marshmallow test. In this experiment, Researchers offered a young children a marshmallow or other treat immediately with the option to wait 15 minutes and they would receive two. The researchers then left the children alone in the room with the treat to see what would happen. Some children were simply left to their own devices and others were taught coping mechanisms to avoid eating the marshmallow. And in the study, some children were able to delay and receive the extra bonus while others chose to eat the treat right away. The study then followed all of the participants for the next 20 years and found that children who were able to delay gratification were better adjusted emotionally and had across the board better test scores, grades, and the professions than the children who ate the marshmallow immediately. Now, Dr. Michel was the first to point out the limits of his own experiment. Your future is not in a marshmallow, he said. Our success in life does not depend on our ability to abstain from sugar as a five-year-old. The marshmallow test seemed to show that children saw the benefits of self-control even when the researchers taught them the methods to help them delay gratification. It doesn't have to be innate which is good for those of us for whom it is not. We can learn skills to help us reap the benefits of greater self-regulation because whether it is innate or taught, regulating our desires seems to be one of the royal roads to a healthy and productive life. Controlling our instincts, urges, and reactions allows us to focus at work and with friends, maintain our cool and heated situations, and make generally healthy decisions.
This is the heart of much of what we try in order to improve our lives. Going to the gym, meditation, diets, planning apps, routines, even therapy, all of this is essentially meant to help us self-regulate. 2,000 years before the marshmallow test, the rabbis had already figured this out. And they were inculcating self-regulation in Jews through rituals. Specifically, the rabbis tell us that we, that we must say a blessing before we do a mitzvah, when we have a good experience, and of course, before we eat. These brachot are so important that the rabbis tell us anyone who benefits from this world without saying a bracha, it is as if they have stolen from God. Let's leave the theological implications of such a statement aside for a second and read this law as saying that blessings are incredibly important. Saying a bracha before we eat ensures that we self-impose a delay between wanting to eat something and putting it in our mouths. And in delaying with specific words, we create a moment of meaning and gratitude. The practice of saying blessings before we eat, despite its Talmudic import, is not something that we rabbis often emphasize. We do this perhaps out of a general fear of pushing religious practice, or maybe because we ourselves have forgotten the power of a bracha. But this custom is one that we ignore to the detriment of individual Jews and Judaism itself. While I see the irony of spending part of Yom Kippur talking about eating, tonight, while our pre-fast meals still sit in our bellies, is a good time to think about how we can better sanctify the act of eating when we return to food tomorrow night. The benefits of saying a blessing are tied up in the very words that begin almost all of them. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe. The phrase is so common that it isn't even written down in rabbinic literature. They just say the ending. You know, Hamotzi, Shechianu. The phrase is so widespread, it is one of the very first or even only bits of Hebrew that many people learn. Yet this formula, however simple it may seem, contains within it all of the meanings and benefits, the practice of saying, the meanings and benefits of our religion. The practice of saying blessings it can bring to the life of a Jew. Everything we want to gain in our lives, the meaning we are searching for, all of it is wrapped up in each of these holy words. So let's take a few moments tonight and explore what each of them can teach us. Every blessing begins, Baruch Atah, which we often translate as, Blessed are you. We begin each bracha invoking the idea of blessing and gratitude. This concept is integral to living a healthy and kind life. One of the first things we teach our children is to say, please and thank you. And in essence, that's what we're doing when we begin our blessings. But the phrase Baruch Atah has other important layers. There is something theologically radical about the idea that I can say, blessed are you to God. Who am I 
then where do any of us get the nerve to say that we can offer God our blessings? Rabbeinu Bachia is so worried about this. He posits that we've been translating it wrong. And bracha actually comes from the Hebrew word brecha, which means source or well. That is to say, baruch atah really means that you, God, are a source of blessing. The first words of every blessing remind us of the fundamental duality of what it means to be human. On the one hand, we have tremendous power, the ability to shape the world around us, eat whatever we want, build, destroy, and even bless the Lord. And at the same time, we recall that actually we are nothing when we rely on God, the source of all the blessings that we have. After Baruch Atah, we speak the ineffable name of God, yud Hey vav Hey, the four-letter word we mispronounce as Adonai, or Hashem, the name. This name, we are told, can be spoken like a spell. It can kill or create, it can control, it can heal. This word is so potent, so special, it is only pronounced by the high priest once, today, on the holiest day of the year. This is the name that the second commandment forbids us from a brachal of atala, taking the Lord's name in vain. When God's name is used in an oath, that oath must be fulfilled. To speak this mystical word before a bite of bagel may seem almost heretical. Yet that incredible awe and power of speaking God's name, I believe, is the point. Saying Adonai is meant to give us pause to knock us out of the mundane and contemplate something higher, even if just for a moment, before we do the most mundane activity, eating. In our world of constant distraction and need to continuously be busy, how much better could our lives be if we employed this device to take a beat each and every time we eat? Next in our blessing formula is another name of God, Eloheinu. But Eloheinu is more than just a name. In addition to the word is the ending new, which means our God. And who's the our? The Jewish people. In this third piece of the blessing, we're made to acknowledge our connection to Jews everywhere. As I pause to bless before taking that first sip, I think about Jews around the world doing the same thing. I think about Jews throughout time doing the same thing. My grandfather used to lead Hamotzi at summer camp, and my five-year-old insists that he is the one to say it every Saturday on Shabbat afternoon. As I recite Eloheinu, I feel connected to them both. Saying a blessing links us to our people, past, present, and future. As the number of Jews identifying as Jews continues to drop, it would be good if we could have a few more daily reminders of who we are and the amazing chain of history to which we belong. Finally, we, can conclu we conclude with Melech HaOlam, King of the world. By invoking the entire world, we're asked to include in our blessing everything that it took to get the food into our hands. The clerk at the grocery store who sold it to us, the trucker who delivered it, the farmer who grew it, the scientist who created cultured dextrose, etc. 
Our world is so interconnected and vast that every sandwich we eat comes to us through the efforts of hundreds of people, most of whom we'll never know. We have, may have paid for the food. We may have cooked the food. There's even a chance we grew some of the food, but there is still no way that we would be eating that food without the labor of others. Our blessing acknowledges those others and our role in the web of society. Baruch atah, Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. Baruch atah reminds us of our great power to bless others and at the same time our great need to receive and be thankful for the blessings we have. Hashem, God's name, calls us to be mindful and pause, to take a breath for the spirit as we feed the body. Eloheinu links all Jews together and reminds us of our peoplehood. Then Melech HaOlam places us in the context of a universe larger than ourselves to which we owe something as we also take. Balance of ego, mindful meditation, connection to a larger group, and perspective of our role in the world, as well as the requirement to pause and think about all of this before we consume. The ritual of brachot, contributes to making a person able to self-regulate, better able to delay our gratification and work for something larger. The rabbis have taught us how to pass the marshmallow test, and the answer is, bless the marshmallow. But it's not simply for personal betterment that we should all make saying blessings a part of our lives in this year to come. Judaism needs brachot as a means of revitalization. The Seder and fasting on Yom Kippur may be the most popular rituals, but their observance, along with most observances, has taken a downturn. We need something relevant for our day to step in, and I think blessing meets the needs of today's Jew. They are short and relatively easy Hebrew. Blessings can be said like Netflix on your schedule wherever you want anywhere, anytime, in a group or alone. A bracha is the perfect ritual for us. It gives those who need humility, humility, and those that need a moment to feel powerful, that power. It creates moments of mindfulness in a fast-paced world. A bracha reminds us of our bonds with our fellow Jews and that we're part of a great people while also reminding us of our place in a wider world and that we are affected daily by people we will never meet but couldn't live without. So in an attempt to help us all add brachot, saying blessings to our lives in the year, as you leave tonight, outside we have cards that we've made with the help of Chazon, a great organization. You'll see their name on the card. On these cards, we have some of the blessings that we say or could say every day before we eat, before we enjoy things from this world, even upon leaving a restroom. As you go tonight, take one of these cards, please. Take two. Give one to someone else. We have plenty. Throughout the year, try it. Keep this in your pocket. And before, once a day, the rabbis say you should say a hundred blessings in a day. Let's go with one, okay? <laughs> Start with one. Before you eat something, use the card, say a blessing. I promise it will make you feel better. You will see an improvement in the way that we live our lives. If you don't, money back guarantee. 
Today we fast to atone for the sins of our bodies and souls, the misdeeds of self and our appetites. The blessing before food is a rabbinic fence to keep our appetites in check and help us self-regulate not just once a year, but daily. Let us, each of us, each just once a day, try to say a blessing before we eat. Let us make that blessing a meaningful moment. Call to mind the layers of our world and stick with the practice of saying them until we see results. Because we will see our own ability to control ourselves grow. We will foster a greater connection to our people, our food, and our world. We will be part of revitalizing our tradition and its rituals. May this be our blessing for the new year. And to all of this, we can certainly respond. Amen. Shana Tovah.